determine if ally was a title that you were going to add to your bio or if it was going to be a way of life you walk in allyship you are acting as an ally welcome to beyond allyship a podcast that helps humans shift their understanding of what it means to be an effective ally and show up in allyship for marginalized communities Let's get it popping. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Beyond Allyship Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. J-Pop. And today I'm going to start off with just some gratitude. I am extremely grateful for the community that I have been blessed with. If I, if someone asked me if I was wealthy, I would say yes. And my bank account does not reflect it. But uh, the people around me are just so amazing and they lead with love and I feel it in our conversations and in the help that they give me and today I'm bringing one of those pieces of the community on to the podcast. I am very excited to have Dr. Thurman Webb. Welcome to the mic Dr. Webb. Good morning. How are you? I am amazing. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm wrapping up a semester and uh, closing out some endeavors so I'm extremely I'm feeling extremely productive. Oh, that's a good word. Productive. Well, you kind of already started, so I'm going to let you introduce yourself because Dr. Webb wears many hats. So take the floor. Yeah. So uh, I am a professor. I am an IO psychologist. I am a therapist. I am a CEO of a consultant firm. I'm a father. (laughs) I'm a husband. Uh, I'm a lot of different things, but uh, at the end of the day, I'm me, which I really celebrate, right? Uh, Everybody else is like you can be you, I get to be me and just try to make my contribution and exercise my gifts and talents so they support my purpose. I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing that because already you're dropping wisdom. A couple of months ago, Dr. Webb came into the Building Allyship community to talk about the role of psychological safety in allyship and He left most of the members speechless um, with a lot of things to process, great things to process. So we're going to kick this off by just asking, Dr. Webb, what is psychological safety? So psychological safety is a concept that refers to the extent to which individuals feel comfortable expressing themselves and sharing their thoughts and ideas and concerns in a group setting without fear of negative consequences such as ridicule or retribution. So it's really about feeling okay in a space to just be, Mm. to have a thought, to be able to express it, and to do it in a way that is contributing to the collective. You know, I tell people, like, we want to make sure that we're contributing to the collective, but if I don't feel safe, then you're not going to hear my narrative. Mm -hmm. You're You're going to hear a presentation. Yeah. But it may not have all of me in it. Okay. And for people of a marginalized group, when it doesn't have all of me, and it is not because I'm being something other than myself. It's just because I don't feel safe enough to exercise the vulnerability that comes along with my whole narrative. Mm. So psychological safety says I feel all of those things. I feel the safety. I feel the respect. I feel the honesty. And it invites me to do the same. So it's not so much about what's coming out of me. It's about how I feel when it's coming out mm. to determine the intensity or or the depth in which I provide uh, a piece of me. So psychological safety is a big deal. And it's showing up more and more in 
in corporate spaces I work in, but we know the, the, the origin of psychological safety for marginalized people starts with the Black experience. Which is a class that you teach. Absolutely. I am the <laughs> lead instructor for psychology at a Black experience at Tennessee State University, a historically Black college and university. And we know psychological safety is relevant to the Black experience, particularly in light of history of systemic racism and oppression that Black individuals have faced in the United States. Mm. So, I mean, this is, we're going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but (laughs) part of why we know each other is because we both attended what I would call a unicorn, an all-Black, private, Christian, elementary school in Nashville, Tennessee, like all of those words. (laughs) (laughs) And in the time that we were there. In the like late 80s, 90s, that's when we were there. When you think about that, because you're teaching at an HBCU, when you think about developmental psychology, what role would being in a space where everybody looks like you, where what would psychological safety play in that? You know, the ability to show up at a place where individuals look like me, where they they had an insight to the cultural experience that I was experiencing. We already had some built-in familiarity around other aspects of what it meant to be a person of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for us, you know, to be a person of color within a religious space, Mm -hmm. within a private entity, like we were in, we had gone through so many subcategories that it really put us in our own bubble in a lot of regards. But in in the inception of, of our education and our tribe, that actually turned out to be a very good thing. We were able to reaffirm our identity. We were constantly interacting with things that shored up our identity. It was never in question. And it was done in a way that says, you know, when you walk out of here, you don't need anything else to validate your beingness. You just get to be. Mm -hmm. And if anybody tries to infringe on your space, these are the things that you use to hold your line. And so, like, you know, we talk about our school, uh, specifically F.H. Jenkins and all of the individuals who graduated from there that I still keep in contact with, which is quite a few. That's one thing that we always come back to, the ability to establish some discipline, Mm -hmm. to not have to have our identity validated so much so by by, or looking for outside approval. Like we, we really work the process from internal to external, which is the natural flow of energy. And so in doing so, we were able to show up in the world and show up in other places with that solidified in a lot of regards. And I don't think that that would have happened that way had I not had that experience because it it literally transcended socioeconomic levels. It did not mean that we were discriminatory or marginalized any other ethnicity, but we were the center point for how we had an educational experience. And that allowed us to absorb all other forms of education in in a more authentic way, I think, simply because we were counted that's the centerpiece for how this process was supposed to work. Agreed with everything that he just said. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. It's not you. You you question some of the things your parents did growing up, and then you look back and you're like, these puzzle pieces were dope, and they fit together so well. Yeah. And the experience that it gave me, and what we're going to talk about the four. I think it's there's four stages of psychological safety. We're going to talk about those, but I, in listening to you, there's the last one that you talk about is the challenger. And 
I do remember by the end of my time at F.H. Jenkins, I had no problem questioning teachers or the principal yep. because it was there was an understanding of safety in that space yep. where I was respected. They were respected, but that didn't mean that there couldn't be a flow of ideas because of hierarchy. Correct. Correct. That That's so true. Again, like, you know, there's a respect factor that exists in any learning process, mm -hmm. right? In order to become the expert, we first have to embrace the learning disposition. And the one thing that I can say in that space is that um, as a learner, you are allowed to ask questions. And so we were really given an opportunity and we were given space to ask questions. But then there was also a space when we we're going through the learning process that you are, it's designed for you to listen. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And if you listen and you trust the source that is speaking, mm -hmm. which is it's like that's so valuable to me now, because when I trust the source is speaking, it allows me to not have to waste so much energy filtering. Right. So I, that's why it's important to vet the source that's speaking to you. OK, so you don't have to like waste the energy and filtering the message because you're going to need that to chew on it and apply it to your lived experience. Mm -hmm. And this is the way we, we fast track the process of, of, of of what this looks like. We fast track it by getting in those spaces, listening, asking the right questions, because there is a such thing as a dumb question when, when we're in that space as an intellectual. Mm -hmm. And and then having respect for the source is just, it's just, I can't say that enough. Uh, so many, so many people miss that aspect of it. They disrespect the process by feeling like they're entitled to know. Mm -hmm. And that takes all of the the cordialness or I don't even like the reference mm -hmm. out, of, out of the process when you feel like, well, since I asked, you should tell me what, how, how this works. We saw a lot of in 2020, this quest to understand the black experience in five minutes on social media <laughs> <laughs> and being upset when you were told it's not my job to educate you by those who didn't sign up to educate. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> And then for some strange reason, then all of a sudden you were found to be disrespectful or going against the movement or anything like that. Like, nah, you're allowed to hold your space too. Yes. So you're, that was a perfect segue. What is the role of psychological safety when it comes to allyship? And this is both on the one who wants to walk in allyship with a marginalized community and the one in the marginalized community as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of in the word like safety, you know, like we have to, like all of us have our own journey of healing. Mm -hmm. And the thing about it is like, in order for us to, to get into the healing process, we first have to expose the wound. and like psychological safety is equivalent to having a sterile environment to expose my wound. Why? Because I do not want to be re-injured, reinfected, or anything like that, nor do I want you to handle it as if it is not damaged, right? Because of the traumatic experience, like it is damaged and it is like it is sensitive. And when I decide to take it off and let you look at it, it's because like there's a story that goes along with it. Mm -hmm. And that means I have some insight from this pain that you can only get from this pain. Like, I can't read this to you. You can't go write about it and have all the nuances of this. Psychological safety says this is a sterile environment, which means it's safe. It's respectful. It is empathetic. That allows me to open myself up and share a bit of my insight mm -hmm. with you. Because it came from my lived experience, from the places like 
because I went there, when I tell you this narrative, you don't necessarily have to go there mm -hmm. to understand and empathize with this feeling, mm -hmm. right? You get to see me. So psychological safety and allyship really is about if if this is not my lived experience, the one thing that I have to do as an ally is I have to hold the line in order for the space to be sterile. And I have to check everybody to make sure that they've washed their mental capacity, right? They cleaned it like their hands. They cleaned their emotions. They have cleaned their experiences so that they're not the forefront, that you're walking in with the understanding that you must walk soft, mm -hmm. right? So it's like putting on the booties when you walk in my house. Like, you have to put those on. Maybe you don't have to do it anywhere else, but in this space, you have to do that. As an ally, my job is to go around the room and make sure everybody has their booties on. Okay. That you have your gloves on. Why? Because this is a sterile space. And you need to be listening and being attentive. Why? Because you may be required to pass me a scalpel because I'm going to show you some things. Right. But as an ally, you just hold the space because this ain't your lived experience. It's funny. You, you said something earlier. There is such thing as a dumb question. Can you expound on that? Yeah, dumb question comes from when you're more interested in talking than listening. So a dumb question comes when it's already been answered. But you ask the question, and generally in these situations, from my experience, people are asking the question because they want the answer they want, or they want the answer the way they want to get it. And that ain't, that ain't what this is, right? So you end up asking a dumb question. Why is it a dumb question? Because your ego and pride are at the forefront of it. So when we get that out of the way, then we can start operating with authenticity. Authenticity really is trying to scaffold its knowledge. Mm -hmm. It is not trying to figure out what I can do to look good in this situation. No, it's what, like, I don't need to be right, but what can I do to make this right? With the understanding, like, I can't make all of it right. I'm just doing my part. Mm -hmm. And my part may be simply supporting you, listening to you, creating your space in the minute that you decide that you want to share that knowledge you have for me, then I need to get crisscross applesauce. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I can hear, like, you know what I'm saying? I humble myself, I move my defenders out of the way, and I literally let the innocent child learn mm -hmm. something. Yeah. And that, that I mean, that's, that's, that's big for me. So what are the components of psychological safety? You know, it's really about a mindset. It's really about acceptance, like there's not a lot of places that people can go, especially people of color, that we don't take our defender with us. I remember one time I asked you, um, like, who is Jen when she doesn't have the shield and the sword fighting for social justice, right? And I'm not sure we ever came to that answer, and I understand why. Because, like, I was in New York a week ago, and the CEO asked me, like, how often do you walk around with your defendant? And I said, 90 percent of the time. And he was like, well, that's a problem, right? I said, I didn't say my defender was making the decisions. I just said he whiffed me 90 percent of the time because like psychological safety says I can tell him to go take a nap. And there are not a lot of places in America where I can tell my defender, go take a nap. Sometimes it's not even in my own home, depending on what's happening outside, because my defender hears you pull up in my house before you ring the doorbell. Right. Yeah. Why is that important? Because we know individuals who are bust in the wrong apartment and shot people sitting on their own couch. Yeah. So 
allyship, like that, like that whole concept means that that sometimes I have to defend even when it's not about benefiting me. I got to hold the space to truly see you win. Yeah. Like that's what a well wish is. I'm gonna hold the space to see you win. And when I see you win, and I'm gonna I'm gonna applaud that and go about my business. You see what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like allyship truly is about well wishing. Mm-hmm. One of one of you know, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a child of Baldwinism. And one of Baldwin's central ideas is the importance of recognizing and acknowledging differences. And in his essay, Stranger in the Village, Baldwin writes about the experience of being a black man in a predominantly white Swiss village. Mm. And an ally is not seeking to see you like they see themselves. The ally is looking to see you like you are. And recognizing like there's more to you by looking at themselves and seeing that I ain't like that. Mm-hmm. And then respecting that interaction. Matter of fact, even trying to color in the differences so that they stand out even more. Because that's the beauty of this thing, accepting the differences, not making us alike. Yeah, yeah that's just... Mm-hmm. As allies, we must we gotta first acknowledge the differences between ourselves and the marginalized individuals. I would say that that's the thing. So we have to really resist this urge to normalize these like individuals and to erase the differences. Like that that that's so disrespectful. Because mm-hmm. the differences are part of me. Yeah, they're necessary. Yeah, and it's funny because you said defender, and, and I'm thinking a lot of our lived experience that we're sharing is really built from the times that we didn't let our defender come and we all of a sudden needed them. No. In a moment, yeah. something happened where we were reminded yes. that this one identifier that I can't change is impacting an interaction and I thought I was safe. <laughs> uh-huh. You thought you could you could take your defender and, and give him a 15-minute break. And then in nah. some new way, I learned, dang, I need my defender here too. Oh, that's exactly. that's what that sounds like? That's what that means? Mm-hmm. And I think it's in Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria? She talks about being in the majority versus being in the marginalized and how much knowledge we have of the majority because we've had to navigate the spaces that were built for them to thrive mm-hmm. <laughs> and not for us. And the thing is, like, they... Mainstream America looks at our defender and figure our defender is aggressive. But my defender will keep the peace. That's why my defender won't allow me to say everything I want to say. Because my defender is like, no, this ain't the place for that right now. Or hold your mule so we can get out of here. Because you don't have to occupy this space. You don't want to occupy this space any longer than you have to. Exactly. So my defender says, he's very... he, he can be even killed because that's what it takes to lessen the experience that is creating the discomfort. Yes. It can wrap up in the other direction, but it might defend the moves in all kinds of directions. Why? Well, it's because he has intricate experience with understanding that the goal here is to make it home. To be safe. To be safe. <laughs> he recognizes, you know, mine is a he. And that yours may be a she, yours may be a they. What mine is a he. He recognizes when the space is not psychologically yeah. safe. And when it's not psychologically safe, there's a level of discomfort that I'm experiencing. 
So he wants to lessen the amount of time that I have to spend in that space that is not psychological. Yes. So he will do what we need to do to get out of there with integrity. With integrity. I feel like I have two defenders. One. <laughs> Don't even care, right? One is from Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. We'll turn up in a minute. Exactly. I got, yeah, he'll go there too, you know. (laughs) Okay. So it was four stages we talked about. It was inclusion, learner, contributor, and challenger, right? Yeah. Can you expound on those? So uh, inclusion, psychological type inclusion is like it's really about creating a space that allows everybody to show up. And to be represented, it recognizes that every perspective has value, right? So we want to see, like, it doesn't matter, even if it's to the other end of the spectrum of what I may be talking about, it still has value, has pointed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. It has the utmost respect. At the core of that inclusion is this this understanding that I trust that you have our best interest, right? That goes without saying. The contributor is 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 also doing things necessary to create these spaces, to build and to multiply allies to the fight. You know, some people say allies, others say accomplices. So it's trying to get as as many accomplices as 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 possible. And in order to do that, you have to put some of your privilege on the line. That is the challenge. Like, how are you challenging the system? And you're not just challenging by pointing it out. You're challenging by putting some of your privilege on the line as investment in the fight. Mm-hmm. With the understanding that when we hit the jackpot, all of the winners don't go to you just because your privilege was on the line. That was just your contribution. That's your dues. Your privilege is your dues. And we talk about it all the time. Like all of us, especially, you know, to be able to do what we do, mm-hmm. Jen, like we have privilege too. Absolutely. And guess what? We put it on the line. Absolutely. A lot. We've had these conversations. Like we, we are not. We don't have as much as some of our mainstream people in America, but we got some, yeah. and that's okay. But we put it on the line. Why? Because we believe in this work. Like it ain't no fun if, if I gotta experience a joyful life mm-hmm. by myself. And so many people invested what minor, minute privilege they had for you and I to sit here. Yeah. Like it's it's unbelievable that they had pennies and they went all in yeah. with the understanding that they would never reap the reward of their investment. They would never reap it. The only thing that they reaped from that was the hope that their idea would come, come to pass. And that was enough to see them through as a transition, just the hope. So you mean to tell me hey, that I can't take what I have that's got their blood on mm-hmm. it? And, 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 and put it on the line to try to create more. And we've had this, like, I have a goal to to play a part in producing at least 300 doctors mm-hmm. of any type. And I'm serious about that. And I put it on the line. I open up my playbook because I and I tell them all the time, hey, I need you to be up here. I need you because I can't be the only one up here doing this work with this type of experience. I know you ain't seen nobody look like me doing this. But I didn't see nobody looking like me doing it either. But now that you see it, hey, now I know you can be that. Come on. Mm-hmm. Like these are the things which we're challenging the system. We're pushing it. And it's safe to learn in these spaces. Like creating safe environments is its own advocacy. Mm-hmm. Because when you create those environments, it allows people to 
to shore up their identity. We have to we have to interact with those things that reaffirm our identity. Imagine like like you said earlier in the example, like when I went home, there was an empowerment of my identity happening. And then I get to school and y'all doing the same mm-hmm. thing. And then I go play with y'all and y'all doing the same yeah. thing. You know what I mean? Like that was never the thing that was in question. Yeah. So that allowed it to cure. That allowed that thing to harden. Why? Because when I stepped out there and somebody actually said something silly, I'm like, oh, man, stop. <laughs> like, like, that's supposed to hurt my feelings? Like, God, with that, man. Like, I'm, stop it. <laughs> you know, you haven't read so-and-so, so you must be dumb. Like, no, I didn't read that, but I read these five others. Did you? <laughs> oh, no. What you know about Bob? Oh, okay. Zora Neale Hurston? Okay. <laughs> like, I'm just, you know, like, right. but you getting all of me for Charles Dickens? Yeah. Slow down, man. But the inclusion in safe places to learn says that even though you may have read Charles Dickens, and I have, that it, like that work doesn't hold like any status over mm-hmm. Langston, over Paul Lawrence Dunbar, over the countless others, you know. So balance. Inclusion is about balance. Like it, it says that I can hold my value and it can be different value, a different value system from yours and, and have as much value nonetheless. Yeah, because it's it's the collection of your lived experience, <laughs> which we don't negate. So we got inclusion, we got learner. <laughs> we got learner. Learner's disposition. Learner's disposition. Which is, get in it. Get in it. Contributor. Contributor. That means doing your part to the struggle, putting that privilege on the line. Contribute something. Now, I, uh, I did hear you say it requires vulner- vulnerability. To put your privilege on the line? To be a contributor. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got to open up the playbook. Yeah. You got to open up the play playbook to your ignorance. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what I mean? The learning disposition, which complements that, yes. is when I say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and that is one of the best answers you can give somebody in the struggle. When you're like, hey, man, look, I don't know what this is. So what you're saying is there may be some things that I brush up against that wound you're talking about, but I have no idea that it's there. Mm-hmm. But I swear, if you tell me that's a sensitive space, I'm going to pick it up and learn it as quick as you can give it to me. Right. Because I want to be respectful of that. Right. It's impossible for me to walk through this thing with perfection. At some point, I'm going to step on someone's toes. The question is, when I step on your toes, was I putting my full weight on it or was I walking softly? Mm. And if you're walking softly, I notice when you step on it, but you're going to break my toes. Right. Like, we can talk about that. If you step in hard through this thing, then we're going to have a problem. Yeah. So that vulnerability, uh, like it opens up and it, it recognizes that I don't know. Mm. And you need that vulnerability if you truly want to engage in reflection. Reflection is when I take time to think about the things I do not know. And I recognize I don't know them. Mm. And that is literally the way we get to be an expert. Right. By accepting as many moments as possible of I I don't don't know. know. And the last one. Challenger. Push it up against the system. You have to challenge the system. There's no way for you to step into allyship or to be a true investor in psychologically safe spaces if you are not pressing up against the system. Mm -hmm. Ball would call it like he, he, like we have to resist the urge of othering. Mm. That's what he called it, right? We don't want to reduce people to others. Okay, that is not that is not indicative of 
of inclusive language. It was in, a, in the essay, Notes of a Native Son, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Where he writes about the ways in which Black individuals are othered by white society. I will make sure I link that in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because othering creates this disconnection and alienation. Okay. And we have to challenge that. Okay. So imagine if I don't embody that myself, but I'm working in a system that it, that does, mm-hmm. right? And there are a lot. It's just that othering shows up in today's society as a cluster of microaggressions. And so, like, I got to challenge that. Well, what happens when I, what, what am I risking when I challenge that? My position, mm-hmm. my status within the organization, my job altogether. But a core belief says, do I want to work for a place that supports that anyway? Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Like yeah. that all comes back to me and what can I, at the core, what can I have? Yeah. And if I have to weather that storm in this moment until I can reallocate or reorganize my obligations to loose me from that, at least I'm focused on doing that. Yes. But when this doesn't fit my system, but I ain't doing nothing to reorganize working for the system, mm-hmm. then I'm, I'm not challenged. Yes. And once you lose yourself for the obligation of that thing, then you're challenged with more intensity. Yeah. Because trust me, people, a lot of people working in a lot of places. And if you were not obligated to that check for your lifestyle, there's some stuff you would tell your boss you're not doing. Absolutely. <laughs> right? You're out in there. Yeah. But or have you taken action to create a disconnect mm. between you and that obligation? Mm. Why? That way I don't feel I don't feel bad about taking my day off. Right. Right. That may be a win for you. Yeah. But I can put in for a day and they can't make me feel bad about it. Cause it's my day. My day. It's mine. And the vast majority of people from the work that I do, and you talk to them, why well, I just feel like I can't take a day off. Well, do you have any? Yeah. But it's so much, I feel like I don't understand that. Challenge the system. Challenge the system. And you challenge the system, it may not be directly, it may be indirectly, right? So if you hear them making jokes about people's sexual orientation, about Mm. people's ethnicity, about people's religion, about people's preferred way of happiness, that's a whole other conversation. Then you have to say, hey, what is it? Simply ask a question. That's how you challenge people. Hey, What's the purpose of that comment you made? Mm. Like, how was that relevant to this space? Yeah. Just explain it to yeah. me. People don't like that because then they got to make up some rationale for some BS. Two don't go I mean, there. they don't know. A lot of it is it's ingrained in you. You're, you've been you've been introduced, inducted into a system that wants you to just go on autopilot. So you ask yes. that question most times is BS because they don't know the real answer. <laughs> exactly. And it, you and I have to like, silence, don't make me nope. awkward. <laughs> I prefer it. <laughs> I prefer it. Yeah, silence, don't make me awkward. So we're we going to be there looking at each other. One of us ain't blinking, and that's usually me. Yes. Like, yeah, I'm good. So, uh, yeah, challenge people. And that don't mean that you have to be aggressive in, in your action. Mm-hmm. Sometimes challenging is just, even though it's not, but... In this instance, sometimes challenge is just holding the line. Just holding the yeah. line. Because people are so used to pushing over. Yeah. And when you when they figure they can't push you over, then you must be challenging them. Well, if that's how they wanted to find it, by all means, I'm going to challenge you every time. Mm-hmm. There's one, and since we're talking about challenging systems and standards, you talked a little bit about 
different dialects in communication and the role of communication in psychological safety. And I would love for you to share with the people. Yeah. So the role of communication is clarity. It's not influence. If people happen to be influenced by the clarity, then that's cool. But we also like we have an obligation as we go through this work. And I I like to consider myself and you like we're constantly working on our dialects. Right. How many different ways can I communicate my message? Mm -hmm. Right. Because at the end of the day, clarity is the goal. And I need you to be clear on what my message is. Mm -hmm. But why is it important? Because when we're clear on it, there are people who want to attach to it. Like they have a, a cleaner palette to put their handprint on. And when I'm clearing my message, people who are in opposition of it, they know exactly what they are opposing. Mm-hmm. Right? And we clear on that too. Yeah. So I want to speak, my different dialects are not just the words that are coming out of my mouth. If we understand that the bulk of communication is nonverbal, then we have to make the connection that one of the dialects I speak is my actions. Mm. and my behaviors. So my actions and behaviors have to be clear also, right? So it has to be in alignment with the thoughts that I'm having. So your emotions are the vocabulary of the, of the, of the body and your thoughts and processes are the vocabulary of the brain. Mm-hmm. I have to marry those two. Why? Because I don't want any confusion. Then I got to be able to speak it across multiple platforms. Mm -hmm. So one may be African-American English, one may be standard American English, the other one may be just look, just let me watch and learn. Mm -hmm. The other way, you know, like there's so many, let me create understanding through my creativity because I am a creator, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, this may show up for us in terms of, I don't know, music, right? We even talk about the uses of blues. That's mm-hmm. Baldwin also, mm-hmm. right? And he writes about the power of music to create a sense of shared experience mm-hmm. and empathy between individuals who may otherwise be very different. But again, that is a dialect. Right. It's very like you're not going to use any new words, right? <laughs> like they, they, they just ain't doing that. The thing that we enjoy is like people say that about me. They say like I just. I enjoy your words. They're so profound. Like, I didn't use the words you hadn't used before. I just arranged them in a way mm-hmm. that allowed them to, to resonate. Yeah. So, like, I take credit for the arrangement, but not, not the, the words. words. And also being free to use all of my dialects. Because, let me tell you, I will put a heretofore and an ain't in a sentence <laughs> at the same time to remind you, I run what I say. <laughs> exactly. I think... Matter of fact, this is the same as plug because the, uh, the book should be out uh, like July, right? And it's, the title of it is Be Still, Say Less. Mm. And in it, I write that healing is hydration to the soul. And it is that hydration that prevents us from engaging in behavior that makes us look thirsty. Yeah. And in my dialect. Yes. <laughs> right. But when you in it, you understand it, then you understand Yeah. Right. The more you read, the more you interact with different cultures, the more you proficient in dialects you become. And allyship is about that, too. That's that inclusive mm-hmm. space. It's not walking in saying this is the correct way to do it. Mm-hmm. It's about saying, oh, man, look how many different languages are present. Yes. And how many can I understand? And what I don't understand, let me get at the feet of it. Right. 
and ask it to, to, to teach me the proficiency of it, right? The competency of it. And uh, when you do that, then you're able to walk in spaces. And I, I, it's akin to traveling abroad. You know, you and I both have done it. There's a tourist thing that happens. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that in some spaces. Mm-hmm. But there's another thing that happens when you just sit amongst the locals. That's where the trip is. So if you think you're on a cruise ship and you stay in on a resort and that you've been to that country, by all means, I want to challenge mm. that. I want to challenge you to go to the to the local coffee shops that make you know the safe areas. Sit down, eat where the locals go eat, what they consider to be good food. Have conversations because I'm telling you, there's a richness there that, and they respect that. Everywhere <laughs> they respect that more, you know. Everywhere, I will never forget a trip to Paris where I, my husband said. Now, I know you have this vision of it, but the people aren't always receptive. And the first day I attempted to order in French and got a whole French lesson from the person behind the counter yes. simply because they noticed, oh, man, she like is really trying. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and I'm like the same thing in Dominican Republic, um, you know, been going for many, many years. And that's one thing that they said. They was like, man, just try. Just try. Just try. They ain't requiring you to get it perfect, but the fact that you're trying is such a sign of respect to the culture that they would like, ah, uh-uh, you done enough. Let me support right. you. This is how you say that. Exactly. <laughs> oh, and they laugh. Oh, no, but this is what you mean. And before you know it, you show up in those spaces and you are speaking yes. the language. Yes. And, and it's a sign of respect, a sign of reverence, because it takes a lot to hold a culture. And if I'm being honest, that's something African-Americans, we don't really know anything about how to hold a culture mm. because we've been detached mm. from our origin mm-hmm. and we were man made yeah. in America. That's true. Right. So we've been we've been working to undo it ever since. So we've just kind of been floating out here. But uh, we we doing the work. I think it also explains why we're so attached to some of the things that yes. we see being, you know, taken from us and made yes. mainstream. Exactly. Like, this is all we got. Y'all gonna take that too? <laughs> right. But but and within that, we gotta understand too that part of our culture is being created. Truth. That's why we are constantly creating. So we don't necessarily value the golden egg because mm. we go. Mm. I can lay another egg. Uh, but we got we got to own the fact that we are the golden goose with that abundance mindset. Exactly. So we could talk all day, but we're going to wrap this up. But there's someone who is in charge of a space, is in a leadership role, and is wondering how do I know <laughs> if the culture that I am facilitating has the component of psychological safety. How, what would be the first thing you would tell them to do to assess? I would tell them to put knowing second on the list and ask yourself, how do you feel? I need that individual to tap into that internal intuitiveness, mm. that thing that extends the five senses, like that thing that has you look at something and the balance sheet checks out, but it don't feel right. Like, I need you to tap into that thing. Because that would mean that you're trusting you. Mm. That would mean that even though you ain't figured it out, you know you're uncomfortable and you can stand on that. That goes back to what you and I were talking about 
at our earlier uh, educational experience. I didn't always have to know exactly what it was. I just had to know that it didn't feel right to Mm -hmm. me. And I'm going to act on that. And sometimes that's all it took for me to figure out why. Right. So I, I figured out like I wasn't there to make the decision. I was there to understand the decision I made. And so I would tell that individual, man, tap into your feelings and start asking yourself, why is this thing affecting me this way? Okay. Remember, it's supposed to flow from internal to external. And while you may not necessarily be able to control your organization's processes or things like that, you do have some say in how it impacts you. Okay. And you need to take control of that. Okay. To end, this is just for the human that's listening. What one action item in allyship would you give to the people today? I would say work to cultivate empathy. Like really, there's no such thing as a bad emotion. But I, I need people to work to cultivate empathy. Why? Because it allows me to share in a feeling with someone. And so many people are missing out on so much insight and knowledge because they are afraid of the discomfort that the feeling will elicit. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying that the only way to get some of this stuff that you want is to feel that discomfort. And once you get down, like take advantage of it. Don't waste the waiting. Like get down in that discomfort and just feel it. Don't translate it to anger. Don't try like don't 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 let it start to feed your ego or your pride. Just feel it as a human being. And that thing that that would allow you to take information and understand information so that you you can call it knowledge. Yes. Right? Because if you don't understand the information, then it's still just information. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Grateful to have you on. And yes, he'll be back. Don't worry. Where can the people find you, sir? Yeah, they can find me at centerperson.com, centerperson on uh, Instagram, rebrand the black man on Instagram. And again, um, the book will be out. Be still, say less. Hopefully by July. I just had some more thoughts that came up like two weeks ago that I'm trying to put in the book now. They're going to be know, other I know, books. I, know. <laughs> I got to be right. Okay. That's all. You know, you know, I understand that. I understand. Birthing experience, I do. But everybody, y'all will know when the book does come out. Right. Thank you again. And I will see you all next time on another episode of Beyond Allyship with Dr. J-Pop. I am out. <laughs> <laughs>